Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 55, Living Off the Land. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, all the coolest people. We bring them right here on the show and talk about all the coolest information that's going on right here at NASA. So today we're talking about in-situ resource utilization. Uh, here we call it ISRU. This is the ability to find and use natural resources beyond Earth. I'm especially excited for this episode because ISRU is how we're going to terraform other planets and make them habitable for humans to live. Planet colonization opens up a whole new world of space exploration. How will we derive the resources we need from the barren landscape of the moon? How will the first Martian colony survive such an unforgiving environment? And most importantly, will they miss Netflix? So today we're talking to John Gruner and Steve Hoffman. John Gruner has been at NASA since 1986 and currently works in astro-materials research and exploration science. This is the ARES division, A-R-E-S. He works on advanced mission planning for the future human and robotic exploration of the moon and Mars. In the past, he's worked for mineralogy laboratories developing a mineral-based substrate for the plant growth and regenerative life support systems. He also supported the Mars Exploration Rover missions of Spirit and Opportunity. Gruner can be described as not only a rocket scientist, but also a systems engineer, a space farmer, and a planetary scientist. Steve Hoffman received a bachelor's, master's, and doctorate in aeronautical and astronautical engineering from the University of Illinois, and he has 35 years of experience in the space industry. He's been involved with everything from program management to spacecraft design to orbital mechanics. And he now supports the Exploration Mission Planning Office here at the Johnson Space Center. And he supports a variety of missions for human exploration beyond low Earth orbit, with a particular focus on Mars. Obviously, both of these guys are the real deal. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with John Gruner and Dr. Steve Hoffman. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Let's do it. Yeah, seriously, yeah. let's go straight from there because that, that leads into, that's the whole point. ISRU spells out in-situ resource utilization, right? That's right. It just means living off the land. You got. You only have so much you can bring. So, what is there that you can utilize? That you can turn into something useful? And it sounds like you already have a lot of ideas about ISRU, right? Yes, for both both the Moon and Mars. Both the Moon and, and Mars. And, you know, Steve Steve just mentioned the atmosphere on Mars. Of course, the Moon has no atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so, what you're looking at are the the rocks and soils. Or, or for the longest idea, longest time, we thought, you know that's what we're going to use on the moon, the rocks and the soil. And just recently, within the last 10 or 15 years or so, we've had measurements of water ice in the polar regions of the moon. Right? Hmm. So now it's not just rocks and soils anymore. Now it's ice. And of course, water is going to be the most critical thing out there uh, in space for people. A lot of people say it's going to be more valuable than gold because, <laughs> of course, we need water or we die fairly quickly. You can split water into hydrogen and oxygen, and we need that oxygen to breathe, or we die very quickly. <laughs> and hydrogen and oxygen are great rocket propellants. So 
water is going to be you know hugely important out there and there are there are uh, science fiction tv shows on television right now and at movie theaters that focus on this theme of resources and people battling over resources and you know all that <laughs> so they're they're going to be critically important so uh, we're really happy we found water on the moon because there's a way to make water on the moon out of the rocks in the dirt right yeah uh, the the, the rocks in the dirt that are everywhere or just in the polar regions all over the moon, oh. right? Yeah, so the the Apollo uh, astronauts uh, brought back about 800 pounds of uh, rocks and soil when I was a little kid. <laughs> um, and scientists measured those, and, and you learn about all the chemical elements and the minerals, right? So it's really the mineralogy that's important. And most of the, the minerals on, on Mars or on the moon are silicate minerals, right? Mm. And so uh, part of those silicate minerals is a lot of oxygen. Right, like 40, 45% by weight, oxygen, just sitting in those minerals. Wow. Problem is you have to break the chemical bonds. So those oh. oxygens are, 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 are bonded to silicon and are bonded to irons and magnesiums and calciums. So you got to break these chemical bonds, which require lots of energy, yeah. right? And so it's, it's like, well, yeah, we can make water on the moon out of the minerals. Uh, the hydrogen comes from the solar wind. So since the moon has no magnetic field, uh, like the Earth does, you know, in school, we all learn about this thing called the geomagnetic tail. So where the radiation from the sun hits our magnetic uh, fields and then kind of goes around, uh, kind of like a teardrop shape. So hmm. they, they, the magnetic field protects us from all that. Well, on the moon, since there's no magnetic field, that solar wind's just hitting the surface of the moon all the time. Huh. And a huge constituent of the solar wind is hydrogen. Hmm. Right, and so you have hydrogen slamming into the moon and being retained uh, by the, the the soil and, and the minerals on the moon. You have oxygen, so now you have all you need to make water. Right, and and uh, not only are we finding out that there is water ice in the polar regions, but we're finding out there's uh, not quite water, but hydroxyl. So that's a kind of a water ion, O and H but it could be water as well, but mostly hydroxyl. Hmm. Just by the combination of that solar wind hitting these minerals, finding oxygen and making these little bonds. So there's there's small amounts of hydroxyl and possibly water all over the moon, huh. right? Um, and of course, we didn't know any of this until we started putting robotic satellites uh, in orbit, starting in the mid nineties yeah. and then all the way up today. We have Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, around the moon right now. Right. And uh, one of the instruments on there is a neutron spectrometer looking for that water ice. We have a UV spectrometer looking for that water frost, you know, in some of these regions. So water's critical, and we have it at the moon now. Um, so that will probably be one of the very first things that uh, people working in the in-situ resource utilization field, the ISRU field, yeah. water production will probably be one of the first things people <laughs> try to do. Because if you have water, you can now sell water, right? Huh. And you don't really care what your customers use it for. They want to use it for rocket pellet. That's fine. They want to use it for life support consumables. That's fine. But just having that commodity of water and being being able to sell it or use it is going to be really important. But first, you got to make it, and then you can you do have all the other stuff well, with but, it. But but see, that's a there's sort of a chicken and egg problem there too. If huh. you're going to sell it, you have to have a customer for it. But the customers aren't going to show up until they know that they have this stuff there. So you got to have the capability first. Well, 
it's a chicken and egg problem. Yeah. So who knows? It, it's somebody has got to start. One, there's got to either be a customer there that with a demand for it, and then somebody will follow and, and fill the demand, or somebody's got to demonstrate that that they can do this and have that commodity ready to go, or at least have the technology ready to go, so that the the customers, the people who are going to generate demand, will feel confident enough that they can, you know, invest whatever else they have to do to go there and use this stuff. The way we usually get around that is some, usually a government uh, or a research field of one sort or another breaks or takes the first leap. Some organization that has enough resources that they can invest in something like this without having to answer to stockholders or, or other investors for a return on that investment and demonstrate that they can do this sort of stuff. Hmm. Now, there's, so there's a big risk, but there's a big payoff in that sort of thing. And the, so whoever demonstrates this first and demonstrates not only can you do it, which we kind of know we can do it, but has puts that chemical plant in place that, that actually takes all this, this dirt and other things and turns it into a bottle of water, uh, that organization is going to get a big payoff. Hmm. Now, if it's a government, uh, governments usually are magnanimous about this and turn it over to somebody else to use, but there could be other people or it could be other investors, people with enough resources to do this on their own that they may just go off and do it on their own. And, you know, they'll, they'll reap the reward from doing that. Yeah. Now, is the reward specifically for space travel or are there Earth applications that may be as part of this... Uh investment i guess it's tough to make people have looked at that for a long time and it's tough to make a case mm -hmm. mainly because of the transportation costs yeah you know if you're talking about so take water as our example again it, i you can go down to the grocery store and buy you know a, a case of water for five bucks if you had to take pay for all the transportation costs to get water from the moon back here or put it in bottles it'd be a lot more than five bucks for that case of water mm. so uh, th that's why I, I mentioned before the sort of a rule of thumb for ISRU is to use this stuff as close to where you're producing it as possible. So you minimize, if not eliminate, that transportation cost piece of, of the whole equation. Yeah. So it's talking about, so when you're talking ISRU, you're talking about turning, getting, getting water specifically from the moon. It's not like you can take that same technology of creating water on the moon and bring it to Earth because the moon has is made of different things and we don't need to and we, we are need we to. are a water world yeah right but so. still ex extracting well i mean maybe maybe not maybe not water in this case you're right because we're a water world but extracting resources well, right they, so they're living off the land component so there are other resources people do talk about bringing back to the earth one of them is helium three hmm. uh, helium's also a part of the solar wind so it, it constantly is embedded into the lunar surface hmm. and someday you know, if, if we can ever uh, develop fusion reactors versus our fission reactors that we have today, uh, the, the people that work in the industry say helium-3 is a great fuel for fusion reactors, right? And so that's something that somebody like Apollo 17 astronaut Jack Schmidt, he likes to talk a lot about helium-3. Hmm. Uh, the Chinese National Space Agency right now and, and the Russians also talk about helium-3. Uh, my problem with helium three is when I was in college back in the eighties, we were, they were, you know, digging a big hole at the university of Texas and they were going to put a tokamak reactor and fusion energy wasn't going to be solved. Well, here we are in 2018 and we're still not close to producing fusion or, you know, making fusion reactors that really work. Huh. So 
helium three is talked a lot about you'll see that in the press you know in, in bringing back uh, that to earth some people talk about bringing uh, platinum group metals back to the earth primarily from asteroids uh, and, and rare earth metals uh, that you use in the semiconductor business and, and batteries and things like that, you know, because those are hard to find and precious here on the earth. Um, so those are the kind of things people do talk about bringing back to the earth, not so much water. Hmm. So it's not necessarily the the resource itself from, I guess, is, is it fair to say that there's plenty of helium-3 to provide fuel? Uh, it's just the technology isn't quite there yet to actually do something with to it. To do something with it. That's yeah. right. So the helium-3 is sitting there on the moon waiting for us. Yeah. Waiting for the technologies to mature. And I don't remember, Steve, maybe maybe you know, they, somebody uh, back in the, you know, when the shuttle was flying, they talked talked about a, a shuttle payload bay worth a helium-3 would power the United States for, I don't know how many days or months, but it was it was pretty incredible. Wow. Uh, so it's Probably more than that. Yeah, it, it, but, it's, it's a pretty neat fuel source if we ever get that fusion reactor technology developed. It doesn't take much to, to generate a lot of power from from nuclear sources like that. So, yeah, a shuttle payload bay full of this stuff would probably, is more like years or decades it could hmm. power. So so just to follow up on this this water on the moon, oh, you yeah. know, the reason we like the poles so much hmm. is because uh, water is already there in the form of ice, right? So we had a, we had a spacecraft called L-Cross, uh, it flew out to the moon with Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter back in 2009. And L-Cross was a really fun little mission where uh, people out at Ames Research Center, they had two spacecraft, and uh, they basically smashed one into a permanently shadowed, you know, permanently dark area on the moon where we're pretty sure there was water ice. A plume of all sorts of volatiles escaped into space because of that high-energy crash. Hmm. Another spacecraft threw through the plume and measured what was in it. And the most abundant uh, compound was water, right? Huh. So we have ground truth that there is water ice at the poles of the moon. And the neat thing about that is we only have to heat the, the, the dirt up a, a few hundred degrees to volatilize or, you know, get that water, melt it, vaporize it, and collect it. Earlier we were talking about using the rocks and minerals and breaking chemical bonds. That requires thousands of degrees you know, of, of energy. Uh, huge amounts of kilowatts of power so the the promise of the water ice at the the moon is it's already there we can get to it with small amounts of energy versus the large amounts where we where you're breaking chemical bonds uh, but the moon uh, the environment there in the polar regions very extreme yes i mean in, in the so on the earth we have a you know our axis of rotation is tilted and we have seasons and so unfortunately here in texas we're moving into summer because we're pointing at the sun Ooh, feeling right? it already yeah, well, so the moon's <laughs> axis of rotation is almost perpendicular, straight up and down, hmm. to the big ecliptic plane, that plane where all the uh, planets orbit the sun, right? Hmm. And so you can imagine that the moon at the equator, the energy from the sun, the sunlight's just coming straight overhead. It's really intense. Mm -hmm. But as you go up in latitude, either the North Pole or the South Pole, now that, that energy from the sun is more of a glancing blow. And now you get to the very poles of the moon, and now the, the energy of the sun is going parallel right across the surface. I don't know if you remember your geometry class in high school, but <laughs> when the intersection of a, of a curve and a line. Tangent. Tangent. There you go, right? Uh, I remember. That, that, that little bitty point, right? Yeah. So um, imagine you're sitting in a hole at the poles of the moon, a crater, 
if you will, well, that sunlight's going across parallel to the surface. It's never going to get into your hole. Yeah. And for about two and a half billion years now, we think there these craters in the polar regions have been permanently shadowed. Very, very cold. I mean, colder than Pluto cold. You know, people always think Pluto's the coldest thing in the solar system because it's way out there. But Pluto's actually receiving sunlight and reflecting that sunlight, and that's why we can see Pluto. Hmm. These craters never get sunlight, so we're talking, you know, like 25, 30 Kelvin. That's, that's just barely over absolute zero. Yeah. All right. So the challenge is, from the engineering standpoint, great. We have water ice in these permanently dark, very, very cold places. Now, build me a robot that can work in that environment. <laughs> you know, so everything just, probably freezes. Well, the gal components. So. Yeah, yeah. But it's, metals will will crystallize, and you they'll just shatter like a piece of glass. I mean, wow. so it, the those cold temperatures are uh, probably the biggest deterrent from doing what can be as simple as heating up the soil and and then just collecting the vapor that comes off it. So the technology of gathering that that water is very simple, but but the the materials that you need to to survive in that environment are are something that, that are very challenging from what we can do yeah, now. The folks out at the Jet Propulsion Lab are working on something called bulk metallic glass instead of metal. So you can build gears and structural components out of this stuff, and it can better withstand these, these really, really cold temperatures. Hmm. Right? So scientifically, we know the stuff's there, and we kind of have an idea of, of, of where to go. Now, we don't really know how deep it goes into the, the subsurface. All of our remote sensing instruments can only get down, you know, less than a meter. Yeah. Uh, the the L-Cross impact uh, probably only went down to like three to five meters, right? Um, so understanding the subsurface uh, amount. Uh, so in the, in the mining world, they call it grade and tonnage, you know. How pure is it and how much of it is there? Right. Uh, because a lot of it is going to have to be there to be economically feasible mm -hmm. uh, or if we're really going to use it for rocket propellants. You know, if, if you have one cup of water out in the middle of the desert, that's not going to last you that long. <laughs> but if you have a whole oasis out in the desert, uh, that'll last you quite a while. Yeah, because if you're talking about a surface mission, let's say – Let's say you're bringing humans down to the surface, maybe near the poles. I don't know if that would be feasible uh, or if it would be too cold there, but not necessarily in the crater where it's 30 Kelvin. Um, but if you're near the source of where you can produce the water, is there enough to get something out of it, to create enough oxygen, to create enough water, and to create the propellant That's need? what we have to find out. And so yeah. in, the, in, the, in the economic, you know, the mineral world of, of mining companies, you know, that's, that phase is called prospecting. Hmm. And so we have a lot of data sets from orbit, from our remote sensing, but we have to get robots down to the surface to do prospecting so we can get a better idea of the grade and tonnage of this stuff mm -hmm. to see if it really even makes sense to, to pursue it. Mm -hmm. um, but so, you know, you talked about people landing. I, I mentioned, you know, these uh, holes, these craters at the polar regions that are permanently dark, permanently cold. Well, so think just the opposite. So now I'm at that tangent point between a line and a circle, and I'm not in a hole anymore, but now I'm on a mountain peak. Ah. And what are you going to see? You're going to see the sun just about all of the time. Uh -huh. right? So there are, there are a handful of locations at both the North and the South Pole uh, that sees the sunlight uh, almost 90% of the time. So most places on the moon, like all the places we visited with Apollo, uh, you wind up with uh, 
two weeks worth of daylight followed by two weeks worth of darkness. All right, and that's your typical lunar day on the moon, if, if you like. And that's all because of the, the orbit period of the moon around the Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you, again, when you get to the poles and you have that perpendicular axis of rotation, that whole two weeks of darkness and two weeks of sunlight goes right out the window. And now it's all based on topography. So in the high points, you'll get a lot of sunlight. The low points, you'll get a lot of darkness. So the idea is for people to land and work and live at the high points where hmm. there's sunlight. Uh, and now we can use solar arrays, just, you know, like on the space station, where these really tall rectangular solar arrays. You put something like that on the surface of the moon at the poles and you, you know, jack it up into the, into the sky. Now you can receive sunlight 100% of the time. Yeah. So the people are living in, in the sunlight, getting energy from the sun with solar rays. So that's very low tech. You know, we don't need nuclear reactors for that. Uh, and then you're sending your robots into the dark to harvest water ice. That's kind of the grand picture someday. But first, we have to do the prospecting to find this stuff in usable quantities. we got to do the technology development right. to, to see if your machines can even operate in those very cold temperatures. Right? And yeah. then we have to have the human systems as well. So where are we now? You hinted at the beginning that we've been looking at ISRU since the 80s. Um, but how about technology? Have we sent anything into space? Have we tested stuff on the ground? Just uh, we have one, one experiment. I'll let Steve talk about this. Uh, getting ready to go to Mars um, on Mars 2020 called MOXIE. Hmm. Right? And it's all about making oxygen out of the atmosphere of Mars. So you tell so, Steve. Well, to back up one step, though, the, the technologies that, that we're talking about using for many of these concepts, whether it's heating up and breaking up chemical bonds or just heating up the ground and, and capturing the water, a lot of that stuff is technology that's been used on Earth for, you know, decades, centuries, centuries. in some cases. Oh, wow. So the... the, the but in the, space, nothing. We, so we haven't done any of these demonstrations in space yet. MOXIE so will be our first. On Earth, we, we can afford to have giant chemical plants and and uh, and when something breaks it's very easy to go fix it uh, when you send something into space right now we don't it's usually a robotic device without any people around and so if it breaks you're done hmm. so we have to we have to and launching stuff off the surface of the earth and getting it to some other destination requires a rocket of some size usually quite large compared to the payload so uh, when you talk about taking this technology that we've been used on Earth for centuries in some cases and sending it somewhere else, now we're talking about the engineering to make that thing very small, very light, and very reliable so that it, it you can operate it for very long periods of time without, with the expectation that it's not going to break. Yeah, when, when I talk to school kids, I say, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of equations at NASA, and unfortunately I've forgotten most of them. <laughs> Because uh, I'm 57, I'm you know I'm going to be in this another five, six, ten years maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but the most simplest equation and the most simplest concept to remember is mass equals money, right? It, you uh, want to send a lot of mass into space, you better have a lot of money because you need this big rocket that Steve was talking about, right? We never have a lot of money, so we we try to minimize our mass as much as possible. So you're not going to see big front-end loaders like you know you go to a construction site here on the earth and you see these huge vehicles big massive vehicles with big rippers and and front-end loaders and and drag lines we can't do that on the planets because we don't we can't get all that mass to the planets in the first place right way too expensive so our robots are going to have to be smaller 
nimble, more agile, right? And you're just going to have to accept a slower pace of accumulating uh, the resources than we, we do here on Earth where we have these big monster vehicles that can, you know, dig up a whole baseball field in one big scoop. We're, we just, we don't have the, you know, we're, we're the tyranny of the rocket equation. We, we just <laughs> don't have the money to, to afford huge rockets to send big tractors and bulldozers. Uh, to the planet. How nice it would be, though, to have a moon bulldozer. That would be pretty nice. That would be cool. <laughs> <We> <laughs> All right, so, so he so, mentioned uh, something called MOXIE. Right, One yeah. of the things on Mars that, that we ha- that's on Mars that we don't have on the moon is an atmosphere. And that atmosphere is very thin compared to here on Earth. Uh, it's, it, it, to find a similar uh, pressure and density uh, here on Earth, you'd have to go to an altitude of about 100,000 feet. Uh, so it's very, very thin, but it's there. Uh, so that makes it a, a something that we can we can use. Uh, it's mostly carbon dioxide, about 95% carbon dioxide. Uh, most of the rest is nitrogen, and then there's a, traces of other stuff. Um, so when we talked about using uh, water for rocket propellant, we were also looking at using that atmosphere to make at least part of rocket propellant for a human mission. We can also, but you can also use that for uh, robotic missions. We'd like to do a sample return from Mars, for example. Hmm. So it, the the rockets don't care if the payload on board is a rock or a human being. It's just its mass that the rocket is moving around. Right. They both use rocket propellant. Um, Moxie is um, a way to get oxygen out of that carbon dioxide, and with the idea that that would be half of so the two kinds of, of rocket propellant that you need to get something off the surface. Um, yeah, so for it, rocket propellants, you have a fuel and you have an oxidizer. So here on the Earth, you know, we talked about earlier that Earth's a water world. Well, here on Earth, we have oxygen in our atmosphere. So the good old, you know, internal combustion engines in our cars and in our lawnmowers and everything else, uses the oxygen in the atmosphere as an oxidizer to get that, that, that fuel oxidizer combination going and you get, you know, energy out of it. Well, we don't have- But you can pull it straight from the atmosphere. That's That's right, Yeah. that's right. So we, you know, we don't need oxidizers here on the surface of the earth, Right. but we do out there on the planets. And Steve, what's what's that gear ratio usually between uh, oxidizer and propellant, like seven to one or six to one usually? Depends upon which combination you're using, but it, it's mostly in the, for the, the combinations that we want to use on Mars is mostly oxygen. Hmm. Uh, so uh, it, it's to our benefit to be able to make oxygen there. Uh, we'll yeah, probably, so even if you can't make the fuel there, you make the oxygen, you just satisfied the bulk of your propellant needs. And in this case, it's, on, it's in the 70 to 80% range of the total mass that you need for, uh, for a rocket to get off the ground. So I can bring the, the 20% of fuel, and in our case, or what we're looking at now is methane, hmm. uh, but we'll make the oxygen while we're there. We know where the atmosphere is. It's everywhere. So it doesn't restrict us to where we can land. John was talking about uh, these ice fields being at the poles, so that constrains us to land at one of the other pole on the moon if we want to use water. Excuse me, if we want to use water. Hmm. Uh, on Mars... For, at least for the oxygen part, we can land wherever we want to. And hmm. we can we can use a device uh, similar to MOXIE to, 
to pull that oxygen or pull the atmosphere into the device. You separate out all the, the, the dust and the nitrogen and the other stuff that you don't want and you take that carbon dioxide and you and then you use processes that we understand well from doing the same thing on Earth. Yes. You separate it into carbon monoxide and oxygen. You keep the oxygen part and you let the other rest of it go. So MOXIE is, is the first. We know how that technology works. We haven't demonstrated that we know how to do it from a practical point of view in an environment like Mars. So MOXIE is being flown on a rover that's going to be launched in 2020. Hmm. Uh, its job will be to to do that actual demonstration that says, okay, in this real environment with real dust and impurities and other things and temperatures, all that sort of stuff that goes into actually making this thing work for real will be there and will run MOXIE to, uh, to demonstrate that we can at least do that, that part of collecting the atmosphere uh, filtering out the stuff we don't want and, and uh, getting the oxygen out the back end that we can use. Hmm. Is there a storing component? You would you would grab the oxygen and then kind of put it into a tank, or eventually? I don't. Okay. I think Moxie, uh, and now I'm I'm trying to remember where it, Moxie. I do not think will store that, but eventually we'll have to store it somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So but at the again, very beginning, we you know we mentioned the prospecting part of finding resources yeah the other part the technology part is demonstrations yes. so for the next decade you know that's kind of where we are in in the world of resource utilization and understanding what resources are available on the moon or mars it's all about prospecting and demonstrations and mostly robots hmm. uh, you know we we won't have people on the moon for quite a while we won't have people on mars even longer so it's going to be a lot of robotic technology uh, demonstrations uh, at sites where certain resources are, where you know you can turn those resources into certain products. You know, it's all about getting to the useful product eventually. But there, So there's another example, though, of things that are going on on Earth that will eventually adapt in some form to for these other planets. A lot of the mines, the big mines that you see on Earth, are becoming more and more automated. The trucks are driving around on their own. There's no driver on board. Some of the machinery that's digging things out of the ground are, are um, just supervised. There's nobody in there pulling levers or, or steering the, the, the machine anymore. It's somebody watching on a screen to make sure that it's digging in the right spot and, and hasn't gone off somewhere else where it's not supposed to be. We can take that same kind of technology that we're learning how to do and, and working all the bugs out here on Earth and then miniaturize it and uh, improve its reliability and then we can send it off to the moon or Mars and have those robots uh, do a lot of the work that that used to take uh, people here on earth to do in in, uh, uh, in in a more intensive fashion intensive in the sense that I had to have a lot more people to make this thing work now I don't have to have a lot of people anymore and in fact I got people here sitting on the earth and instead of watching a, uh, a mine that's, that might be in Arizona somewhere, which they can do, now I'm sitting on Earth and I'm watching a mine that's on the surface of the moon. Or I'm sitting on Earth and I'm watching a mine that's working on the surface of Mars. And until there's something that the robots themselves can't handle, and we have to send people to, to correct that situation, whether it's something broke or something unexpected happened, uh, we can sit here on Earth and we can have our minds working uh, on these other planets making these commodities that, that will then be available 
when people actually do go there for whatever reason they're going there for. Right. So robotically, we would sort of develop the infrastructure to eventually support a human mission, assuming that if we do send humans to, let's just say Mars in this example, we send humans to Mars to live, we can expect that the mining operations will have been tested, demonstrated, and you have these tanks of oxygen and water and rocket propellant well, and you'd, everything. You'd like to hope so, but just yeah. like MOXIE, uh, the, the Mars environment is not the Earth environment. So. Mm. We'll have to do, as John said, we'll have to do demonstrations to, to convince ourselves that we know what we're talking about or we know we, we can do what we say we can do. Um, then it's a question, we're back to that chicken and egg kind of question. When do, you, when do I start building a mine? Because that's going to require a lot of investment to be able to do that if there's nobody there. I mean, if there's no, if there's no demand on the moon or on Mars for this, whatever you're making in this mine, mm. why are you building the mine? Yeah. So, so there has they're going to probably uh, evolve or expand or get in place more or less together. I mean, there'll probably be a little mine, a little group of people that get turns into a bigger mine and a bigger group of people, and they'll just kind of grow together as the demand grows. Then the suppliers will have to grow with them, and and vice versa. Hmm. Um. John, I wanted to ask you uh, about the simulants that you're you're right. working with. I, I because was just going to jump in here because we're talking about all these technology demonstrations in space, and of course, when you're you're building hardware, you want to understand what's going to happen when it gets all dusty. Are the hinges going to work? Are right. The, are the shock absorbers things that move in and out? Are they are they going to work? And uh, you know, though though we brought back about 840 pounds of uh, rocks and soil from the moon, we've we've never brought anything back from Mars. Now, Mother Nature has done that for us through meteorites, right? So uh, we have an idea of of maybe what some of that stuff's like on Mars. We also have our robots on Mars making those measurements, but we don't just have planetary materials to give out to the technology world to help them with their machines and developing their robots. So. What we do in, in, the, in the planetary science world here in the Astromaterials Division at JSC, uh, we look at what we've found on the moon in Mars. And we look at the, the chemistry and the mineralogy. And then we look around the Earth, mainly the United States, because that's where we are. <laughs> um, and we find rocks and minerals and soils that are similar in composition, similar in mineralogy. Uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go and collect those in the fields. We'll grind them up into, you know, very, very tiny particles so that they mimic the particle size that are on the moon or Mars. And now we have a bucket of fake moon dirt or fake Mars dirt that we can give to our technologists to test their systems and to see how it's really going to work. So, you know, the, the, the challenge of that is you can't just go to the store and buy one bucket of moon simulant <laughs> because... The moon's a very diverse planetary body, just like Mars is. And so there are numerous different simulants you could design and, you know, recipes, if you will, uh, for certain processes. You know, so like right now, we're working on a, a Mars simulant that simulates a, a very specific uh, windblown deposit on Mars called Rock Ness. You know, our Curiosity rovers on, rock, on, on Mars it measured this dune-like looking thing that, that was called rock nest. Uh, they put it in an oven, they cooked it, and they wound up with about one to three weight percent water, huh. right? So I said, oh, cool. There's water right there in the sand dunes of Mars, you know. Now, of course, there's also water ice all over Mars, 
So, you know, water is going to be a lot easier on Mars than the moon, that's for sure. Nice. Right? But the, uh, the ISRU guys, the technologists, wanted to design something where they could easily dig into a sand dune, cook it, and, and boil water out. So we, you know, just recently we're working on a simulant that will produce 1 to 3 weight percent water. Uh, out of the same chemistry and mineralogy of rockness on Mars, mm-hmm. right? So that's a very specific simulant. Um, you look up at the moon uh, in the night sky, you see the dark areas, you see those bright areas. Well, those dark areas are just basaltic lava flows. I mean, the same stuff that's on the news right now coming out of the ground in Hawaii. Right. Yeah, same stuff. is That's those dark areas on the moon, right? And so uh, a lot of iron, a lot of magnesium on the moon, something called uh, titanium and a mineral called ilmenite. So, you know, everybody knows about titanium. You know, that stuff's strong. You see it advertised on TV. Well, if you want to do a process to mine the dark areas of the moon or the Mari regions, those lava flows, now you're going to need a different simulant than you would, say, for the polar regions, where now you're talking about the bright areas of the moon. So, you know, you look at the, the bright areas of the moon, and that's not lava at all. That's a... It's a, a a feldspathic mineral called the northosite, so a lot of calcium and aluminum, hmm. whereas the the basalts were mostly you know iron and magnesium and things like that. So the simulant business is kind of tricky because sometimes NASA is really interested in the moon for a while, and so we'll we'll, we'll think about moon simulants, and then sometimes NASA interested in Mars for a while, and so we have to come up with Mars simulants, right? And there's there's not just one simulant for the moon and one simulant for Mars. There's all sorts of simulants for all sorts of processes. And <laughs> so that's one of the things we do at the Astro Materials. You know, we have the Mars scientists that are actually doing the experiments right now on Curiosity right in our building. And so I work with them to find out, well, what is the chemistry and what is the mineralogy? How can we find stuff like that here in the United States and make it available to our technologists? So it's, it's a pretty fun project. It's a great mix of science and engineering. Yeah, and you would think, you know, looking at the moon, I mean, if you if you don't know the intricate details of the moon, like the mountains and the different and the different regions, you would just think, oh, any kind of uh, any kind of technology you produce to grab water out of the moon is going to work universally around, but it doesn't seem like that at all. It seems like wherever you put it, you're going to need a different piece of technology because you're dealing with different dirt, I guess. That's right. Yeah, different geologic deposits. Yeah. So besides, um, so going to the moon for just a second, um, uh, talking about all of these different areas, we talked about water being one of the main things you would want to pull from the dirt. Uh, you pull the oxygen from the dirt and then the hydrogen, you, like you said, from the solar winds, so you're getting a little bit of that. What else could you pull from from the dirt of, uh, of the moon to make useful for something else? So for, for a lot of years... Um People have talking about using those silicate minerals, you know, so like I said, most of the moon is silicate minerals, mm-hmm. using the silica and those silicate minerals to make solar arrays. Oh. So you, you process the moon soil, you make your solar arrays, and now you're generating electricity with these solar arrays that you made out of lunar materials, right? So, so the silica be used for that. Uh, the iron uh, that we were just talking about in the lava flows, of course, is a structural thing. The titanium in those lava flows is a structural thing. In the, the bright areas of the moon, the highlands, you have a lot of aluminum. So, again, there's a big structural thing. Uh, there's something I'm just learning about uh, as we're trying to find sources of simulant materials to represent the highlands of the moon. Um, there's something in, in the world called e-glass. Steve, I don't know if you're familiar with e-glass, but, it, but it's a structural thing. Hmm. So, you know, 
we think of skyscrapers being made out of steel girders or we see aluminum panels on the side of barns and such. Um, e-glass made out of the highland materials of the moon maybe a structural component someday huh. so 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 structural things like that um uh, volatile things like the water and the oxygen yeah. and and one thing we haven't talked about and one thing i spent a lot of my life in the 1990s doing was uh growing plants in simulants of planetary soils because so we're going to have people there. We've got to feed them, right? Oh, yeah. So that's the beauty of robots. You don't have to feed them. You don't have to water them. You don't have to bring them home to their families. Mm. But we do all of those things with our astronauts, right? Right. But, and so, so, But one of the things that the moon is deficient in is carbon. And carbon is going to become an important constituent if we're going to go down that path. So, I mean, that that there's an example of something where we're going to have to import uh, a, a critically needed material to be able to pull off some of these kind of that uh, the crop growth, the, the animal growth, the, the feeding, the human beings that are there kind of situation. At least for a moon mission, though, on the Mars, I think you'll have more carbon. On, on Mars, we'll probably have all the constituents we need. Huh. Although John, can, John, the moon farmer and Mars farmer, can tell you that, that <laughs> we can't just you can't just take a shovel full of dirt. And put it in a bucket and grow things, uh, yeah. like like was done on the, on the Martian. Uh, you you do have to uh, remediate that soil. You do have to take out some of the things. Take that, out the bad stuff. The bad stuff mm. before you put your plants in it. The, this the bad stuff that could either harm the plants or harm you if you eat it because the plants take it up and and then you consume it. So um, so ISRU is not a, a universal. Uh, catch-all we there, there isn't everything everywhere that we need it there are still some things that we are going to have to bring with us to 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 make uh supporting human beings for long periods of time on these other planets make that possible yeah so in the geology world and in the astromaterials division where i work um when we were growing the plants we were trying to come up with a substrate that would incorporate either the soil on the moon or mars um, and so we had to work with the plant people right hmm. uh, so find plants that can grow in the, in, in the types of soils and um, maybe do better with, with some nutrients. So I had to learn all about biology. You know, so my, my first degree was aerospace engineering because I thought, oh, well, I want to work at NASA. Well, I better be an aerospace engineer. That sounds very NASA, right? Right. Uh, but after about six years or so and, and working with Steve way back in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, part of my job was to go talk to the scientists and find out what they want to do on the moon so we can provide those systems for them, right? And as I ta started talking more and more to the planetary scientists, I thought, wow, this is really cool stuff. Oh, yeah. And so I went to night school to get my planetary science degree. Uh, but it was all geology, and so now I had to learn biology all of a sudden. Because <laughs> now I'm working with the plant people and growing stuff in the soil on the moon or Mars. And so then I had to learn about, you know, so I learned chemistry. We all learned chemistry, right? But uh, the 17 plant essential nutrients, do you happen to know what those are? Oh, no, I couldn't yeah. list them for you. <laughs> yeah, turns out plants only need like 17 different chemical elements, and, the, and they'll do pretty well. Right? All right. And, and we, we have those broken down between macronutrients and micronutrients. And Steve mentioned carbon, so that's one of the macronutrients. So hydrogen, oxygen, carbon, you know, those things we don't worry about in our fertilizers here or in our soil because it's in the air and the water, right? <laughs> uh, hydrogen and oxygen, that's our water. And then we all learn about photosynthesis and how plants take in CO2, right? Mm. So as long as you have CO2 on Mars or you have astronauts on the moon exhaling CO2, we're going to get the carbon we need from the astronauts, 
right? Through that CO2. Nice. So just by the fact of having people on the moon or Mars, we're going to get our hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon through the air and the water. Now, the other things is where the soils come in, right? <laughs> so if you ever look at a bag of fertilizer, there's three big numbers, uh, like 15, 5, 10, or 13, 13, 13. Those are nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, right? We know those things uh, are on Mars. Uh, there's a the problem with the nitrogen on the moon. <laughs> but again, um, we have those astronauts there. And when we go to the bathroom, there's lots of nitrogen in, in what we put out of our bodies, right? All right. Our water, si our water systems and our regenerative life support world will take some of that dirty water, what we would cons cons uh, you know, consider dirty water. We couldn't drink this stuff because it's full of ammonium. Well, ammonium, NH4, great, there's nitrogen. So again, if, if astronauts are there and they're doing their usual human things, they're gonna supply us nitrogen uh, through the waste products, right? Huh. And so now we have the nitrogen from the humans the, the phosphorus, potassium, they're on the planets. The other macronutrients, calcium, magnesium, sulfur, are on the planets. And then you get into the micronutrients, the irons, the zincs, the coppers, the molybdenums, the borons, all those things we have measured both on the moon and Mars. So all those chemical elements, those uh, plant essential nutrients that we need are on the moon, they're on Mars, hmm. uh, but not everywhere. So you want to go to your best places. So on Mars, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures from Curiosity or some of those, but there's these very dark looking sand dune looking things, right? <laughs> um, and those are basically basaltic sands that have weathered out of basaltic rocks. And the reason they're dark is they have not had many of their uh, chemical elements leached out of them. Hmm. Uh, so we have, we have that problem on Mars uh, going for us that we have uh, acidic leaching of some of the chemical elements, right? But uh -huh. those dark basaltic sands, what a great uh, substrate for growing plants, you know? Hmm. Uh, the moon, we, we can get by. We have what we need uh, on the moon, uh, but probably not as good as Mars. So, you know, this, this whole idea of, of simulants and, and using the soils uh, for plants, for resource uh, utilization, it's really, really a big picture, you know, thing yeah. in your mind sometimes it makes your head explode <laughs> and there's so many different disciplines and, and uh, you know technologies uh, working in this area both on the science side and on the engineering side yeah because i think one of the most interesting parts of of when you're starting to describe these things is it's not as universal as you would probably assume if you're talking about mars dirt mars is a planet planets are big so multiple there's different things happening in different areas. Maybe in the polar regions of the moon, you have more water. Uh, in the darker regions, there's a different makeup than maybe in some of the lighter regions. So it's, it's, a, it's a more diverse way of approaching when you're thinking about another planet. And it's interesting because you're going to have to have the technology to, to, to have things work whenever you oh, get sure. there. I mean, very much like here on Earth. My wife's from Wisconsin. Her family is a dairy farming family. They have beautiful soil up there. <laughs> you live here in the Houston area, and we have this heavy gumbo clay. <laughs> and if you're a home gardener, you got to fight this gumbo all the time. Oh, you know? yeah. So it's really where you are on the planet uh, to where you you know derive the benefits from the local uh, resources. Mm -hmm. so that, and that's one of the benefits of these robots that we've been talking about, whether it's uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter or Curiosity or uh, other robots that are on Mars. They're doing part of this prospecting job for us right now. They're, they're, they're doing the very basics of telling us what it is. 
if we just saw this dark sand dune in a picture, we wouldn't know if that was basalt or if it was something else. Now we know what it is, and we know we can kind of break down the chemicals that are in it. Um, and these robots are also telling us that over here you've got a real high concentration of what looks like uh, a, a high, well, pick one of these chemicals. You're going to find a concentration of it somewhere on one part of the planet, but not in other parts. Hmm. And these robots are helping us make those maps that tell us that it's there's there's a real valuable resource over here, but if you go over somewhere else, not so much anymore. So you want to, you can kind of pick your, you can start to look at those maps and decide where it's more beneficial for you to try and set up one of these bases than, than not. It's just like the realtors tell you here on Earth. Location, location, location. <laughs> uh, so I kind of wanted to bounce off of that to sort of wrap up this talk. Is is uh, The theme here is robots are are pretty easy. Uh, you don't really have to worry about that, but we're going to have to think about a lot of different ways to support human exploration of, of the moon and Mars. And ISRU is just one component of the many things. A huge component. A, one one huge component of, of making this work. And so I kind of wanted to end with um, why why explore? Why do we send humans to do this? And why are we putting the effort into ISRU in the first place to, to make it a possibility and to put human boots on the moon and Mars? Well, you know, we get that question a yeah. lot. And Steve's <laughs> jumping at the microphone, so I'm going to no, let him go first. I, yeah. I was hoping you would. <laughs> um, the, uh, the robots that we're sending to these other planets are 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 extensions of ourselves. People people have this uh, internal need or drive to understand what's going on around them, what's over the next hill, what can can I go and live there? Uh, you know, a lot of us uh, are in the United States because you go far enough back in our ancestry that, that somebody came from a different part of this world and settled here. Uh, they didn't have to. They could have remained where, exactly where they were, but they moved. Uh, that, that same kind of, of drive is going on now, and eventually that will extend to other planets. So uh, the, 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 the difference, a big difference between that example of coming from another, another part of the Earth to the United States is that these other planets are not like the United States or any place else on Earth, for that matter. Uh, you can't just grow there and chop down a few trees, or go there, chop down a few trees, plant a garden, and, and expect to live there. You have, there's going to be more work, considerably more work involved in being able to stay there for um, for the rest of your life, if that's what you choose to do. So uh, we're making progress uh, along those lines. ISRU is going to be a big part of that. Uh, you know, th there's there's a permanent presence at the South Pole, but no one's growing. There aren't acres and acres of, of cornfields or cattle grazing. Or He's talking about McMurdo Station at our South Pole. <laughs> our South Pole. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. Well, I, actually, I'm talking about the geographic South Pole. There, there's a there's a huge station there with a permanent presence. But everything has to be brought there. Literally everything has to be brought there. So uh, it's not some place where you're going to see a, a, a real estate agent setting up shop to, to sell you, you know, the, the, the four-bedroom family house or something hmm. along those lines. Well, there is that UN treaty that kind of gets in the but, way of the real estate agents. Okay, but my point is that, that, <laughs> that uh, humans know how to live and work in a lot of different places, a lot of hostile environments. If we're going to be there permanently, uh, we're making progress along those lines. Robots are helping us do that now. 
Uh, there's going to be, to get back to your original question, I think there's going to be no end of the, the desire or the drive by somebody or some buddies on Earth to go live on these other planets and live there permanently. Uh, we've, we've, we've had no end of volunteers that says, you know, send me, I'll go on a one-way trip. <laughs> um, so that drive is going to be there, and what, what we're doing now is working on understanding what that environment's like so we can tell people what technologies they're going to need to be able to live and work and, and enjoy themselves when they get there and, you know, eventually spend the rest of their lives there. Hmm. And so, so, you know, why we explore that, that's a very hard question to answer. And, and a lot of times it's the kindergartners that ask that kind of question because it's a huge question and it sounds so simple. I have a real simple answer to it, right? Right. Uh, but, but there is no simple answer to that. So the past, past two days I was at a NASA's Glenn Research Center working on a, on a little project. That's why we had to delay uh, this little talk. <laughs> and uh, flying home, there was this, this, this woman with her little 18-month-old girl, right? And I was sitting next to the window, but boy, that little girl wanted to look out the window. She just, you know, she couldn't say any <laughs> words, but you could just look at her eyes and look at her face, and she was amazed at what she was seeing. And that's just this innate quality in humans, right? We're curious about stuff. We want to know about things. We want to see new things. We want to experience new things. And that's what, you know, a part of what exploration is about, learning new things, experiencing new things. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, but then that, that practical side that we were talking a little bit you know, earlier uh, uh, about maybe, you know, platinum metals in space or helium-3 or whatever resources out there that we might be able uh, to use here on the Earth. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that drive uh, to, to try to make life better here on Earth, to, to, to supplement what we have here on Earth, uh, so, you know, we, we can uh, keep going it is, is critical, I think, to our species because, you know, this is a great planet we're living on, but sooner or later, we'll, we will run out of our resources. Mm -hmm. You know, as population gets bigger and bigger. So what are those resources out in space and how can they help us live? And maybe you do have to go live on the moon to, to utilize those resources or, or to Mars or, you know, like on the TV shows out at the asteroid belt. Who knows? Uh, but, you know, that's that's hundreds of years uh, from now, but we have to start uh, somewhere. And that's kind of where we are right now. We're kind of at the start of all of that. If, you know, it, it probably would have been fun to, to go back in your Wayback Machine <laughs> and, and land in the 13 colonies of the United States, and you're at the start of a country. And way back then, they had no idea what we would eventually evolve to, right? And so when it comes to space and, and space resources and people getting out there and living and working for long periods of time, we're at the very beginning. And it's really hard to say where it's all going to go, but we know resource utilization is going to be a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You, don't, you can't really predict the future, but you know that something good's going to come out of it, and so you just sort of truck on. And that's why you cross the Atlantic and start colonizing, and then you realize that uh, maybe the, you know, there's more to this than just the coast, and so you expand west. You know, there's, there's, you just do it, and eventually good things kind of come from it. Kind of bouncing off your first point, I think one of the biggest things you said was experience. And I think, though, you know, we can send robots. Robots give us a lot of data about what we sent them there to do, but in terms of experience, that's a very human thing, and I think that's uh, that's something that is really important whenever you're, whenever you're actually going out and to other planets and to the moon. You know, like we we sent stuff to the moon 
before humans landed there, but it was not until humans landed there that really people latched on and were inspired. And I, I mean, I know a lot of people here were inspired to work here specifically that's, because of the moon landing. That's why Steve and I are here. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> I'm that guessing it, you weren't even born during Apollo. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was that was a little <laughs> a little bit long, a little bit ago, but. Um, uh, yeah, so it, it just uh, it, it still inspires me though. I mean, I wasn't alive, but it's it's something that really drove me to work here and and to and to put my life's work into it. So yeah, one of the things we just you know throw around cliches always, but yeah. you know you've never seen a ticker tape parade for a robot, right? <laughs> the Apollo astronauts got huge ticker tape parades. Uh, yeah, where they just had a big royal wedding over in in England, and of course that was a huge parade, right? Yeah, you, you don't see that for robots. Right. They're great tools uh, for us, but they're not humans. Exactly. Well, John and Steve, thank you so much for coming on and, and talking a little bit about in-situ resource utilization for us today. Sure. My pleasure. You're welcome. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with John Gruner and Steve Hoffman about in-situ resource utilization. I hope you really like this talk. Uh, you can find more episodes on, we, we've actually talked with a lot of folks from Aries. Uh, we've talked astro-materials, we've talked moon rocks, we've talked meteorites. A lot of these talks can be found on Houston. We have a podcast, so you can check out any of our episodes. Don't need to listen to them in any particular order, but check them out there. Otherwise, you can listen to some of our other NASA podcasts that we have, Gravity Assist, Rocket Ranch, and NASA in Silicon Valley. Go to nasa.gov to find the latest updates on deep space exploration. You can go to aries.jsc.nasa.gov to find out specifically what they're doing. Otherwise, follow us on social media. We're the NASA Johnson Space Center on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms, submit an idea, ask a question, and we'll bring it right here on the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. This episode was recorded on May 23rd, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, Kelly Humphreys, Jenny Knotts, Tracy Calhoun, and Thalia Petrinos. And thanks again to John Gruner and Dr. Steve Hoffman for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.